Meet Yelp for Restaurants. Not the software company, but the people who love restaurants so much they formed a team dedicated to our industry. Before Catherine joined the customer success team, she managed the modern in New York. Yeah, that modern. Before Julia joined the team, she worked at Oshaval in Chicago for half a decade. Yelp is for restaurants because our people are restaurant people. Meet the new Yelp at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast. Now here we go. Anybody who came and asked me about the restaurant was getting the full pitch. And that's based on this kind of appropriate nerves. And I don't care if you're on your first place or you've opened seven successes in a row. It can all go away very, very quickly. There's a million cautionary tales of people that were very successful that lost it. So I would only get nervous if I'm not nervous when I open up a place. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. After opening 30 restaurants over the last 27 years, James Beard award-winning restaurateur Kevin Boehm has become a visionary within our industry. In our conversation today, we talk about the winning recipe he's created that's centered around great chefs, inspired design, and enlightened hospitality. So when I dropped out of college, two of my roommates in college were Dave Eggers, who went on to be a finalist for the Pulitzer and he wrote The Circle and Hologram for the King and, and Mike Hopkins, who was the last American astronaut in space. And so I'm in college and I really wanted to be a restaurateur. There was something about it that I really dug. I didn't know anybody in the business. I remember saying to Dave, he's like, dude, you don't want to be a lawyer. And I go, I know I don't. I want to be a restaurateur. I go, but it doesn't seem really realistic for a guy like me to be able to get that done. And he goes, Kevin, Mike thinks he's going to be an astronaut. <laughs> I was like, touche. Yeah, maybe I can try it. So I dropped out of school and I really didn't have much of a plan at that point. But the basic plan was to work two jobs and then eventually I would have enough money to open up a restaurant if I was good at it. And I wrote a fake resume. I got into this restaurant where I got a job and my resume had all restaurants on it that had all mysteriously gone out of business so they couldn't call for a reference. <laughs> and I was not very good at it. But what happened was is I started to get a lot of call tables. And I was super confused about why am I getting a bunch of call tables if I'm so bad at this job? And it was because my emotional IQ within a restaurant was high from the very beginning. And I just had to catch up technically. So once I caught up technically... And once I had a little bit of scratch, I said, what the hell, let's open up a restaurant of my own. I had no business doing that at that point, but I had enough money with my girlfriend at the time to open a little six table restaurant in a town that was an up and comer called Seaside, Florida, which is kind of famous now. And we opened a little tiny restaurant called Lazy Days Cafe that was stuck together with bubble gum. It was, we had plastic resin tables that I put concrete in the hollow poles so they were sturdy. And then I padded the table and I put tablecloths all the way down to the floor so people couldn't recognize that they were plastic. And it was a masquerade. It was like a movie set. You could put your fist through everything. But we were decently successful, successful enough. I mean, the oven blew up in my face and caught my hair on fire on the first night open. But other than that, <laughs> true story. But we figured out at least how to make enough money to still survive. And you said masterclass. I'm going to say it was more of a 
bachelor's degree at that point because I really didn't know how to do much of anything. I didn't even understand what the benchmark numbers were for food cost and what I should be paying for rent. It was just like, is there money left in the bank? There is? Oh, good. Thank God. And we can go another month. And so that was the first place. And then we got bought out and that was enough money for me to open a second place, which I ended up doing by myself. And that was like a true reflection of who I really was. I opened up a wine bar, sushi bar, rock and roll bar. It's like my three favorite things that I piled them all into one place. And so the beginning, we were like pigs on roller skates, but we had a ton of heart and we were really nice to people. And so that's, I think, one of the big lessons still is like, keep your middle class sensibility, be really kind to people. And your emotional IQ can take you a long, long way inside of a restaurant if you can make people feel good, even if they're sitting in a little back deck with a kerosene heater and plastic. What are the fundamentals? What did you walk away from that experience? Because I'm assuming that with each opening and each exit, that you're getting a little bit more money together, a little bit more experience together. And in a restaurant, you can watch a thousand things, right? There are a thousand little details to track. But at the end of the day, four locations in, as you begin to conceptualize Boca, what are you looking at? What are you watching? What are the foundational elements of a successful restaurant? Yeah, so... This idea of putting a concerted effort in every single night is still a massive part on it. The great restaurateurs do not rest on their laurels once they got three stars in the Chicago Tribune or a three-star review in the New York Times. It's this idea of it is a hard job and I'm going to continue to put effort in it because I want to take care of people. And so I think there's this idea of holistic empathy that if we have empathy towards each other and everybody kind of cares about each other and they're that foxhole together, that that empathy kind of trickles down to everybody else. At a baseline, you want to hire somebody who actually really does want to take care of people, but also isn't a cancer within the space. That idea of people being happy within a workspace translates to people. They feel energy. People are not as in tune to the amount of power they have with energy as they really do. And so that idea of everybody taking care of each other inside the space is a huge part of that atmosphere. Oh, yeah. The reason that I took the entrepreneurial route was because of that afternoon drive to work. I was running nightclubs in Hollywood in the early 2000s. And every day I would drive to work. I was like, today's the day. Today's the day I'm going to get canned or yelled at publicly. I don't even know how I'm going to fuck this up, right? But I will. And I'm going to get yelled yes. at. And then I'm not going to have a job and no one's going to hire me. And this was my daily routine. I think the other key part is, and this is something I still have, is appropriate nerves when you're opening up a restaurant. When the Hoxton opened, this is not that long ago, I had just gotten back surgery and I was kind of backed myself into a corner because the revelers kept like slapping me on the back and congratulating me. So I backed up into a corner and a woman came by and she goes, hey, you're never going to remember me. But I met you on the stoop outside of Boca before you opened. And she goes, you were kind of eating your lunch in a daydream. And I came up and said, hey, tell me about the restaurant. And she goes, you stood up and gave this long, detailed, impassioned speech like you've been practicing it in front of a mirror, which I think I probably had. <laughs> and I don't remember the exact conversation, but I remember how I felt. I felt like I was having a baby. <laughs> I was really scared about failure. 
And I knew it wasn't just about me anymore. And anybody who came and asked me about the restaurant was getting the full pitch. And that's based on this kind of appropriate nerves. And I don't care if you're on your first place or you've opened seven successes in a row, it can all go away very, very quickly. There's a million cautionary tales of people that were very successful that lost it. So I would only get nervous if I'm not nervous when I open up a place. The appropriate amount. I don't want to be sick to my stomach, but I want to have some butterflies. Those are those things that underlie that kind of great food, great atmosphere, great hospitality. Those little things that sit underneath that. And the very final one is financial responsibility. We can't continue the art if you're not financially smart. Everybody wants to be an artist, but if you're not following the benchmark numbers and making sure that you're fair to the people who work for you, that you're fair to your investors, that you're fair to yourself, that you're fair to the community. If you're not taking care of all those people, then you can't continue to paint your paintings. I couldn't agree with you more. And it actually brings me to my next question, which is, you wanted to be a restaurateur. I wanted to be a restaurateur. And there's a very different worldview of someone that is a restaurateur like you're a restaurateur and someone that has a single unit location in Glendale, like in a strip mall, right? And I'm curious to know, when you started and as your career evolved, how much intention went into you clearly defining your role within the industry? I had three locations in Los Angeles and still found myself somehow, some way, wearing a rubber apron for at least a couple of hours a day, at least a couple of days a week. And I would argue that that is a restaurant manager with equity, not necessarily a restaurateur, depending on how you decide to look at it. So what is a restaurateur to you? How did you define it? And how did you stay on that career path? I know that fear, the fear of losing everything or almost as bad, the fear that you'll have to grind on for years at the restaurant without things ever getting better. Hope is nice, but you need help. So I'm going to leverage my 20 years in this industry and the 200 interviews I've done to give you the help that you need. I'm hosting a free webinar this month called The Scaling Session. Over 90 minutes together, I'm going to lay out exactly what you need to do to scale profitability, scale brand awareness, and scale customer frequency. Go to restaurantwebinar.com to sign up today. To make sure that everybody gets what they need from the event, seating is limited. I'm only allowing 25 guests so that you all get the individualized attention that you deserve. Go to restaurantwebinar.com to secure your spot today. Well, Rob and I always talked about a restaurant group a lot more than we did the word restaurant tour. And we used to say, because to be clear, I only had in 92, 95, 98, and 2000, I never owned those restaurants at the same time. I opened one and sold it. So I only knew how to open one restaurant at a time. Boca opened, and Rob and I talked about building a group. And we used to say, anybody could catch lightning in a bottle and open up one restaurant. And then maybe some of those people, it's still a coincidence if you have two, but three was really a group. When we started looking at it, looking at financials and like being able to hire a director of operations and really looking at economies of scale, that was not going to happen until we had three. So yeah, one restaurant, I was there six days a week, 9 a.m. to midnight, still counting money, still making deposits. Two restaurants, same schedule. Three restaurants, same schedule. 
Boca Landmark Perennial. I was on a door six days a week. I was doing the P&L by hand. Rob was making all the deposits. The toilet needed plunged. We were doing it. That all was still happening with three. And it also depends on what your three restaurants are. We had three restaurants that were middling success at that point and not making enough money that we could hire all these people. Now, our fourth restaurant was Girl and the Goat that Rob and I did together. That changed our lives. So when we got four restaurants, you had to start looking at things and saying, should I be doing this task or should we be hiring a controller who could do all of this, do it better than we do it, and then we could be doing all of this stuff, which makes our company better. So it all comes down to financial. You're a restaurateur if you have one restaurant. You could definitely say that about yourself. But depending on who you want to be, and some people, that's exactly who they want to be, Josh. They want to have one restaurant. They want to love that restaurant, take care of that restaurant, see every plate that's going out. And I couldn't have more respect for somebody who does that in their life. And there are people that look at it and say, you know what? I want to grow and be able to do this. And as you know, as time has gone on, it's gotten harder to be successful with one restaurant. The people that can do that, it's amazing. I don't think it's any less hard to do that than what we do necessarily. But once you start growing, and being able to grow and build a restaurant group, it's a completely different muscle. I will say that. Owning one restaurant, three restaurants, seven restaurants, 14 restaurants, 20 restaurants, all of those were completely different companies. And we have different positions based on where we're at now. We hired a director of inclusion and community during the pandemic because that was a needed position based on who we'd become taking a good hard look at ourselves in the mirror and saying, this is someone we need to make our company better. So I think it's constantly taking a look at who you are. Anybody who's doing that and growing themselves within one restaurant or growing themselves within multiple restaurants, that's a restaurant tour. Well, I think the secret is to clearly define it and to continuously reevaluate it. If you aren't where you intended to be, then you have to reverse engineer how you got to where you are. And as I look at your career in 20 years, 28 restaurants, it seems somewhat formulaic. It seems like a very intentional path. And I'm curious to know, what are the qualities that you think you possess that enabled you to reach this level of success? Well, it's actually been 30 years, 30 years since I opened my first. <laughs> and then Boca Group has been 20 years. So that 20 years that Rob and I have been together, and I look at those first four as me just like getting a foundation of education for what I did. And what we've done in those 20 years, I'd love to say it was all a formula, but when the economy crashed in 2008, we saw that as our slingshot moment. And we had a conversation and we said, no one's going to be opening up restaurants right now. And there might be this clearing for us to open up something because people are still going to want to eat out. We opened Girl and the Goat in the teeth of that economic crisis and then GT Fish right after it. And they were the two most successful restaurants we'd ever opened. And so that's when we kind of took off because there was an opening for us to take off. That was intentional. We opened seven restaurants in three years after opening up three restaurants in five years. And so then we were a group that had to grow into its big boy shoes. So it was like, wait a second, this corporate office probably shouldn't just be me and Rob. And so we started to build it up. And that part was intentional too, where we had this period of growth 
we'd catch up to ourselves, and then we'd have a period of growth again. And then, like people do, we had our own missteps again. In 2017, we had three places that basically didn't work for three different reasons. And fortunately, we've been able to rewrite a little history there, but one didn't work because of arithmetic. One didn't work because of the way we conceptualized it. One didn't work because it was just a bad deal. And so the bad deal we were able to walk from, and the other two we reconcepted and were able to find some gold within it. But when I look back at that, it really was because we were moving too fast. And some of the things that were special about what we did and were able to do, we didn't have enough time to do. And so there's a certain amount of time that you're going to have to go through this critical path. And we always went through those stages until that time. And then it was like, you know what? Divide and conquer. This person goes and does this. We're going to go and do this. And losing that collective intelligence that we always had made us lose a couple of times. You find out the Rubik's Cube that is this restaurant game. If you get too confident about it, it'll slap you in the face just to wake you up, just to say, hey, <laughs> not so fast. What are the lessons you carry from that? When you look back at those closures, all of the closures, I would hope that there are universal lessons. We'll never do X again, or these are a few things we should watch out for. Because I think we learn as much, if not more, from our missteps as we do from the glowing victories. So what did you walk yeah. away? What were those lessons? Well, I think that I'm really lucky to have a partner like Rob because we agree 99% of the time. And when people ask, why does your partnership work? And I'm like, well, it starts with the fact that we agree most of the time. And when we don't agree, we question it. And I think on those three deals specifically, I look at the one, Rob's an incredible negotiator too. And on one of those deals, it was a deal where we were kind of a little bit blinded by and dazzled by the location. And so we even knew in the beginning, this isn't a great deal, but we'll make this one work. And on the other two, we kind of differed on our ideas of those two restaurants a little bit. And we're just like, ah, we'll work it out. Where before it was never like that. If we disagreed, we go, we better look at this a little closer. And so we, you still keep learning lessons even into your 50s. You have this thing that's always served you, and then you still turn your back on it. And so we, we were able to go back, and Olivita is one of the most successful openings we've ever had. That was one of the ones missteps. Belmore actually... One was Robert Port's best new restaurant in America. It was beautiful. Jimmy was a talented chef. Karen's a great designer. It was just too many seats for that precious of food. Just in the conceptualization, just saying, do we want to be this big a price point in a space that's double the size of Boca? It's also very similar to Boca. And we so we just missed it. That was sitting at the table, getting into the weeds on what were the core competencies of that restaurant and just missing it by like 20 or 25%. So you guys are stamping out locations. Every restaurant, I couldn't agree with you more. It's a snowflake, right? It's its own ecosystem with its own needs. And again, if you miss it by 5%, you're shutting down. A miss is a miss is a miss. And you said it a couple of times, this wasn't a great deal. Are you able to articulate what a great deal is when you look at it? Yes. Like, tell me, share. Yes. <laughs> So 
we've had so many deals in so many different ways. So first of all, when it comes to financials, in the early days, we would raise 100% of the capital for 40% ownership of the restaurant. And then we would pay the investors 80% of the capital their principal got paid back. Rob and I would take 20% in the salary. And those deals were great, except the cost of capital was really, really high. And then you open up a restaurant like Girl the Goat on one of those deals and you're like, oh crap, why are we giving yeah. away that much ownership? So then we went self-finance for a while and there's a lot more risk, but those deals are good too. But then when you look at the deals from an internal standpoint, you say, when we walk into a space and we build a pro forma, we build these conservative pro formas and Rob and I always write a number down in a piece of paper. We walk in and I'm like, slide it over. <laughs> We're always within a hundred grand of each other. I think we'll do 7.2 million here. And so for him and I, it was always in the early days, don't pay more than 5% rent. Nowadays, it's like based on the pro forma number, don't pay more than 6% rent. And so we look at our deals as right now, the second 22% cost of goods sold, 40% labor, 6% occupancy, and 20% silo, which is everything else is 12%. And that's a floor of where we want to be somewhere. Now, some of these restaurants we run, 34, 36% labor. There are restaurants that like the Hoxton, they're really high beverage that we can run 18 or 19% cost of goods sold. But that's basically where we sit. And then the devil's in the details and operating agreements. We've done JVs with people to very successful JVs and some JVs that don't work out. You should vet your partners as hard as you vet the person that you marry. So have a real understanding Talk about every worst possible scenario at the beginning. And if you have a good rent deal, if you have a good op agreement, if you have good partners, if you have a really good concept and you're capitalized, I feel like now if we've done all those things and we sat at that table, we've ironed out every detail, I feel really good about the chance of us to be successful. But there's so many people who want to jump into a deal so bad yeah. or they get so attached to a building or they get so attached to just being in business that they cut a bad deal. It's the old music story of someone signing away all their publishing for 10 years just so they could have a record out. If you believe in your talent, don't sign the bad record deal. And so now for us, we never get too attached to anything. If it doesn't fit within that box that we know is successful, then we don't do the deal. Did the pandemic change the trajectory that you'd set for Boca? Or do you feel like the pandemic is just a temporary deviation from an already successful strategy? It changed us a little bit. We did the Hoxton Hotel in Chicago with those guys from the ground up, and they had asked us to do LA and New York at the same time, and we'd said no. Before those even opened, we'd said, no, we're not interested. They offered us during the pandemic to go back and be part of those deals, and they were management deals, and we were scared and we said, yes, let's take them. Are you sure you don't want this fee-based only deal? <laughs> so we changed our model a little bit because we were already opening Girl on the Go to LA, but we said, okay, we'll travel. We are always getting so many offers out of town. We said, hey, maybe we should take these hedges. Maybe we should take some more management deals. So that changed it a little bit. Yeah. And I think that everybody in the industry looked at the models and said, you know what? This model's a little too fragile. And yes, we're going to pay people more money, but you know what? Food prices have to go up. Oh, yeah. This t-shirt I'm wearing, this t-shirt was 18 bucks 20 years ago, and now it's 75 bucks. The hamburger that I ate at a sit-down restaurant all those years ago was 15 bucks. Maybe now it's 17 or 18. 
I mean, food prices needed to go up. I think cost of goods sold blended across the board needs to be 20 so we can pay people and have labor be 40. And so we can still get to that 60 prime number. But listen, line cooks in Chicago now make 18 to $22 an hour. God bless them. They deserve it. And so where do we make it back? We make it back by raising prices. And so I think everybody doing that kind of across the board, and I see that happening in our city, is allowing the model to be less fragile. So we're always not like, oh, crap, does payroll hit Friday? Do I have enough money in the bank? I mean, I remember those days very well where, you know, logging into your bank balance and hoping there's going to be money there. I want to talk about marketing because I think it directly relates to what you just said. So I believe that we spent the latter part of the last two decades in this fierce competition with each other as restaurateurs, right? Who can sell the cheapest shit for the longest period of time until our neighbor goes out of business? And at that point, we'll readjust. But somehow, some way, they never go out of business and prices keep going down. And so everybody knows we should raise prices. Everybody that's listening knows that. They knew that in 2018 and 2016, that the model itself isn't sustainable. But it's easier said than done because it's really hard to have those conversations. And I believe that we as an industry defined value as the most for the least. And so if we're going to change those rules at the very least, it's going to require a conversation. How are you having that conversation with your team and with your patrons? I think coming out of the pandemic, I think that's what everybody was talking about. Is like you saw profitability in restaurants go down, 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 down. When I started the business, people used to say 20% profit in 1990 was what everybody was shooting for. There was a book yeah. called Restaurants That Work that I read back then. That was the benchmark numbers, 20%. And now I see people and they're like, yeah, you know, we're doing 5%. We're doing pretty good. So I think the conversation is with customers, guys, this is what we do. We build beautiful restaurants. We have the best chefs that we can find. We're using product that we can be proud of from local farms. And within our restaurants, yes, you are going to pay a premium to have those things happen. Now, listen, can everybody do that? No. I had restaurants in Santa Rosa Beach, Florida, and Springfield, Illinois. And there is a ceiling on how much you can price stuff. So everybody has to figure out what they can do and what they can push it to. But I think even in those markets, they can't stay at the prices they were at before. I used to shuck a dozen oysters for 99 cents, you know, at <laughs> a place. There's no way you could do that now. Oysters are a dollar a piece or a dollar 25 each wholesale. So I think that conversation for us, we don't keep anything proprietary financial wise. Anybody who's a manager in our building looks at every line item of every P&L that we have. And when we open up a restaurant, I sit at a big table with everybody. So does Rob. And we say, guys, you know what? We're going to treat you like your partners in this place because we want you to take ownership of it. So we're going to tell you, we invested $3.3 million inside this restaurant. We're going to return it at 90% of what we're going to make. And so this restaurant's not going to be paid off for who knows, three years, four years. So we're all going to chase to get that paid off because as soon as we do, everybody's sitting here, if you're still with us, is going to make more money. And I think when you have those conversations, people are like, oh, okay. I remember a manager saying to me once, like she started at Little Goat like two years in and Little Goat's busy, man. I mean, it was a diner, but Saturday we do 3,000 people. And she was like, are you telling me that you guys haven't paid this thing off yet? I'm like, no. <laughs> she just couldn't fathom it. She's like, but we did like $50,000 on Saturday. I'm like, yeah, not paid off yet. And so I think those days, which I don't think anybody in the 1980s and 1990s was sharing those numbers with anybody. 
But I tell everybody, share your numbers. How do you hold people to be accountable if you don't tell them what's going on? And so we work in a business that, yes, you can strike gold and you can also lose everything you put into it. So that's the risk that people like yourself and people like me take (laughs) each time out. And I want those people to be on that side that I'm on, that chase, which is kind of fun. Like, I can't believe how good we did this month. We're 78% paid off now. Three more months, you know, that can be fun too. I think I told you before the interview, I was 99% artist and 1% businessman when I started this. This is absolutely true. And I still love the art of it. But the commerce part of it too can be really fun. When you reach that perfect intersection of where you've priced everything and where everybody's being paid and what you're making on a monthly basis, it's a fun thing to get to. Well, at that point, your business is working for you instead of you working for your business. Or at the very least, it's more of a compromise. In order to sustain a couple of dozen restaurants, you've got to have a serious marketing infrastructure in place. What does that look like? Yeah, we do. So Taylor Crowley has been with us for a long, long time, and she's the head of that department. But underneath that, there's somebody who's a copywriter, and there's somebody who's a designer, and there's somebody who's a photographer. And that is for the whole entire company. And then within Stephanie Izard's world, there's an entire team of those people that just work for her world. When we were opening Girl and the Goat, the year before we opened, we did what was called the Wandering Goat. And we did a underground dinner every single month at a different location for a year. And we build up all this pre-press. And we thought, yeah, this is really going to pay dividends. We opened up Open Table. We were booked 90 days in advance. And it happened like in five minutes. Crashed the system. And we were like, Aha. <laughs> We're onto something. This building a story up. And then with GT Fish, we filmed 10 episodes. They were like TV episodes of Test Kitchen and us hiring people. And so we were like, wow, you really can establish this kind of hype train building up to it where people get to know the characters. And people felt like they knew Stephanie because they watched her on that show and she was brilliant on TV. And so trying to figure out how to dip into that personal connection with people. And so now we do that on Instagram. We try to have a really high standard of photography and copy. And I like to write. So on my own Instagram, I write long pieces on my own Instagram when I do post. And so I think having a style is really important. Deciding who you are. I think that people could really benefit sometimes from not just posting the obligatory food pictures and saying, we're going to post three times a week, but when we do, we're going to talk about stuff that's real. Make the content really serious and have some really great writing and have some really emotional writing and bring people into your life inside the restaurant. Not just post, here's what special I'm working on. I couldn't agree with you more. I think that the only thing that differentiates one independent restaurant from the next is the restaurant tour. It's the one competitive advantage that we all have. I think if the narrative changes from this is what we do and this is why you should care to this is what I believe and this is how it manifests in my day-to-day life within the confines of this restaurant, who's with me? I think it's a more compelling message and I think that it truly resonates. For sure, for sure. That's one of the things I found out in the pandemic was all these great stories. When I jumped on a phone call with 17 people on March 17th, 
that ended up becoming the Independent Restaurant Coalition. And one of the things we did every single meeting was instead of doing pre-shift like you do at a restaurant, we did post-shift. And people stood up and they talked about everything in the business and this connection that we all had together in hearing all these stories. Those were the type of stories I wanted to see people write about on Instagram. I felt closer to all these people and it made me want to go to their restaurants more by hearing their backstories. Those are rich stories that people get emotional about. People like being emotional about restaurants too. <laughs> this is an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to offer? Happiness is success. And so I think that the most important thing to do is look at everything you do in your life at least once a quarter and make some very tasteful edits. It might be as little as, hey, everybody, you don't need to CC me on every email that you write within the company. I know how hard you're working. Only send me emails that you want me to give input on. And so I think really looking at everything that you do, am I doing the things that make me happy that I am the best at? And then also, anytime negative things happen in this business, which they do all the time, restaurants are a big problem machine, try to balance it with something positive. If you have to have a negative conversation with somebody who works for you, that's a hard conversation, balance that with sitting down with someone who you love what job they're doing and just tell them how great they are. It will balance the scales for you, I promise. And keep improving. I'm a big fan of Simon Sinek. He talks about the infinite game, finite games or baseball games, you know, whoever has the most runs at the end of nine innings wins. And business is an infinite game. You're not going to win in business, but the goal is to be better every single month. And most restaurants don't get better every single month. They go like this and then they go like this. So it's so much more fun and rewarding to be improving all the time. So think of it as an infinite game. Don't be in competition with other people, be in competition with yourself and just keep improving. That's Kevin Boehm. For more on the Boca Restaurant Group, visit bocagrp.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.